0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 135, Cascade Heights. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're covering Cascade Heights, an expansive 1920s development along Cascade Road in southwest Atlanta. We're starting with the road's native history, the area's role in the Civil War, early homesteads, official development, and all the way into racial integration into the 60s and 70s. Usually, I don't get to do two neighborhood episodes in one month, but Cascade Heights has literally captivated me. A few weeks ago, I was in the Atlanta Public Schools archives and I found an original 20s newspaper ad from the new Cascade Heights development. And I have truly not stopped researching this since. So today I'm gonna share what I found. I also have to shout out my friend Erica who not only lives there, um, but works tirelessly to share the area through the Cascade Heights social media pages, which I will put links to in the show notes. Before we start, I wanna talk about geographical boundaries. If you type in Cascade Heights into Google Maps, you're gonna get a really weird shape It looks like a swan or something. But what I want you to keep in mind is that in the 20s, in the early 20s, when this area was developed, these boundaries were much more fluid and um, much more shaped like a circle. So neighborhoods like Audubon Forest or Magnum Manor, they did not exist until decades later. And so it can get really confusing. I'm going to do my best in this episode today to talk about the surrounding neighborhoods and then tell you at least when they got put there. Cascade Heights sits in the Utoy Creek Valley. The Muscogee called this land home for the majority of the time, and that word Utoy is actually a Muscogee Creek word meaning boundary, as this was the boundary between the creek and Cherokee lands. It's the earliest place of European settlement in Atlanta, and it contains Cascade Road, which is a portion of Sandtown Trail. The Sandtown Trail was named for the communities that the trail connected, and that included Sandtown, or Buzzard's Roost, on the banks of the Chattahoochee in Fulton County, all the way to Decatur. So this has been used for transportation by the Cherokee, by the Creek, by the Spanish, and early white settlers looking for gold. When it came to white settlers, I covered these two homes in episode 34, but to give you a general recap, two of Atlanta's oldest residential structures are part of Cascade Heights. Dr. Joshua Gilbert served as the area's first doctor, and his home was located in the current-day Cascade Nature Preserve. It stood until the Battle of Utoy Creek, when it was destroyed, In 1864, he built the Cascade Mansion on Dodson Drive as a wedding gift for the marriage of his daughter Elizabeth and Dr. William Poole. And so that is still standing today. The home of Joseph Willis still stands on Willis Mill Road. He owned the area's grist mill where you brought your dried corn to be ground into cornmeal and grits. And the mill was then converted to saw lumber. He built his log cabin to house his wife Elizabeth and 10 children and after she died in 1859, he married Sarah Strickland and they had three more children. During the Civil War, both of these homes were used as headquarters, which is you know, most likely why they're still standing today. And speaking of the Civil War, the Battle of Utoy Creek was fought over an area just west of Cascade Nature Preserve up and over towards the middle of like, Greenwood Cemetery. 157 years ago, on this same exact week in August... Union soldiers attacked Confederate positions in a victory that would go on to signal the end of the war just days later. And I've mentioned this before, but as a non-war history person, one of the best tours I have been on was with Colonel Perry inside the Cascade Nature Preserve, walking on the same hill You know, as these Union soldiers at the same time of year in the August heat, it's really, really fascinating to see the trenches that are still there um, and apparently rumors of cannonballs and and bullets in the trees. So post-war, we definitely have people living out here. It's mostly larger estates and what were called country homes. Because remember, this was not the city of Atlanta at the time. There's no streetcar to get people here on a regular basis. And this was really only a place that the wealthier could live because they had carriages or horses to get back and forth. Well-known Atlanta mortician Harry Poole was born on his parents' land, an estate they called Ovidia. That house did not survive, but Harry built one right in the same spot and lived there until he died in the 30s. There is a street called Ovidia Circle just off Willis Mill Road. At the corner of Cascade Road and Lynnhurst Drive was the home of the Pitts family. Thomas Pitts came to Atlanta in 1894, and he opened one of the first soda fountains in the city. After starting to sell dairy-based products, like ice cream, he went out on Cascade and he purchased 16 acres for a dairy farm. He retired in 1926, and the Pitts went out to live there permanently. They called their estate Casa Loma, translated to House on the Hill. And the property had a cottage, built in 1910 and then a larger main house that was completed in 1919. There's also barns, water tower, um, a garage. And so this piece of land, it's hard to see from the road, but if you do an aerial shot, it's really fascinating because it's it's still the same acreage. It just has no more buildings on it, sadly. They even had a short-lived school. Fulton County established a school in 1899, but there were not enough students to continue into a second year. It was then reestablished in 1902, and again, did not have population to keep going. And then in 1908, the first regular school was started by a petition from two Cascade residents. So they raised $600, and they went to Fulton County and asked to match their donation so they could purchase a land lot for a school building. So from what I can understand, there was a small two-room school building there until at least the 1920s, when there was a more permanent structure built. The Cascade Parents Teachers Association formed in 1923, and they were able to convince developers to donate land for the school building. There was also a very popular inn along Cascade Road called Cascade Terrace. So in 1920, there's a guy named Carl Ferries, I think that's how we say it, and his wife held a dinner, just simple dinner in their house. And that morphed into 15 years of operating this Cascade Terrace outside inn a group of buildings that held private parties, dinners, and was well-known for fried chicken and southern cooking. So it had an open-air dining room. There is one photo I found that I'm going to post on social media. Um, There's picnic tables and swings, and it had basically any local party. So like the West End Women's Club had a party there. There was a famous um, opera singer or something that visited Atlanta and had dinner there, and it was kind of known as a motorist inn. In June of 1924, the Wei Khan Company, a newly formed real estate concern, purchased 230 acres on Cascade Road, and the official plat was filed in August of that year. John Ponder served as real estate agent. By October, the main roads Boulevard Granada, Venetian Drive, and Boulevard Lorraine were being graded, each 60 feet wide and one mile long. A field office was built, and Ponder had sold 130 home sites in four days, each costing between $600 and $1,000. It wouldn't be Atlanta without some heavy marketing, so they started to call this area, quote, Pace's Ferry Road of the South Side, end quote, and sometimes Pace's Ferry Road of the West End. They made sure everyone knew that men like Poole and former Mayor Ragsdale had homes nearby. By May of 1925, the first homes were built and photos appeared in the newspapers. And this is one of my favorite things about Cascade Heights. There are so many photos of these early homes. Most were commissioned by their lot owners, but just like other developments, some were built as spec homes by Wacon. One of those spec houses is the house at 2126 Boulevard, Granada. By 1926, several brick homes were being commissioned by B.H. Burgress, so he, from what I can understand, he lived there, but I think men that had enough money purchased several lots, had a few houses commissioned, and then sold them for profit. By the summer, the developer decided to purchase their own white motor chassis, basically an early version of a car. And they did this because they were able then to pick up potential buyers from the Whitehall Beecher streetcar stop, that's about as far as you could get, and they could bring you to the new Cascade Heights. At the same time, they also had three granite entrance gates that were being planned. In 1927, the Cascade Community Club formed at the house of J.S. Gibson, which was at the corner of Cascade and Boulevard Lorraine. In 1938, Mrs. Thomas Pitts, remember her from Casa Loma, she formed the Cascade Beautification Project Club. So she held fundraisers at her house to raise money for shrubbery and flowers to plant along Cascade. Um, what I learned is they did not get too far, but they did a lot of work. So if it's crazy to think about that some of the trees... Um, or plants or shrubbery that you see today could have been planted by this group. Another fun fact, Delow Drive is named for her. So before she got married, she was Miss D. Wilson Lowe. Earliest mention of this road listed as D. Low, like separately. But my assumption is that over time, it just got mushed together into Delow. So yes, this road that we have made famous by outcasts and forever associated with southern rap, was named for a white society lady who lived a hundred years ago. In the midst of the Depression, Charles Adams Park was completed by the Works Progress Administration, labor, and then funded by Fulton County. As you can imagine, having this beautiful new park with golf, plans for a pool, tennis, baseball caused a little mini development boom. And again, in the depression, which is pretty crazy. In the 1930s, a Cascade Grammar School opened, the area got its own Carnegie Library and Beecher Hills neighborhood was born. That land plotted into 350 house lots and sold by George Wilson. By 1939, Cascade Manor was the newest subdivision to join the area, touting it was the closest to Atlanta city limits. Just a year later, Kenmore Parks was developed, and a year after that, the limits of Cascade Heights expanded to 50 acres surrounding Adams Park. In 1946, the trackless trolley, which was pretty much like an electric bus that ran on overhead wires, began coming to Cascade Heights. And this was the first post-World War II trackless trolley line the city of Atlanta implemented. And it stopped at Boulevard Granada and Delo Drive. This also happened to be the yard of J.J. Moore, who was not happy that people were getting off the bus and trampling his yard, so he complains to Georgia Power, who owns the streetcar line, and they're like, you know, this—you got to call Fulton County Police. It's not my problem. And Fulton County Police is like, listen, we don't have spare officers to put into your lawn. And there was a lot of neighborhood, you know, uproar over this. I think the PTA women wanted the streetcar to go to the school, but it didn't change. In 1947, Atlanta made its first attempt to annex Cascade Heights. So this annexation attempt could honestly be its own episode, and I've mentioned it before in the Buckhead episode. For Mayor Hartsfield, this was kind of a veiled attempt to keep Atlanta's population majority white under the guise of, you know, the city is crowded and we need to expand. Racial demographics were changing, and places like Buckhead and Cascade Heights, among others, were majority white neighborhoods. And the issue is that these communities did not want to be annexed. And so in Cascade Heights, residents voted five to one to reject the annexation proposal. Now that did not last. So this did go on to pass in, I think, 1950 or 1952. That is when this neighborhood officially became became part of Atlanta. By that point, Audubon Forest was already developed. It's named for John James Audubon. All the streets were named for birds and trees. And this development had strict covenants to quote unquote preserve the community, which among things like certain setback or certain house prices, it also meant exclusively white only. The late 40s also brought the opening of the area's first supermarket, colonial stores, the opening of fire station number 25, the building of Beecher, Beecher Hill Baptist, a new Presbyterian church, and four to five large apartments along Cascade. And this is that post-World War II housing shortage that I've talked about many times in other episodes. And so apartments were being built across the city to house returning GIs. And this time also marks increased racial tension in Atlanta. Uh, talked about it in residential bombings. But post-World War II, there is, again, severe housing shortage, which is even more severe for Black Atlantans. We see the rise of the Colombians, the Ku Klux Klan, and Cascade Heights was no different. In 1952, a cross burned in front of a house on Herring Drive, home to an elderly disabled woman named Mary Butts. She had lived in that house for 23 years, Herring Road being majority black, even when the surrounding neighborhood was not. Her neighbor, Charles Spikes, ran out and saw five or six men in a car shooting firecrackers, turned around, came back, shot more firecrackers, and then left. When they called the police, the police said the same car description was seen placing warning lanterns along Cascade earlier. By the dawn of 1960, racial tensions were bubbling. If you haven't listened to episode 130 about golf course desegregation, you should. But the group of black golfers that I talked about from Lincoln Country Club first attempted to host a tournament at the Adams Park course. And Cascade citizens lost their minds, staging protests and even calling Mayor Hartsfield. In October of 1961, 1,500 white Cascade residents packed the Southwest High School Auditorium, led by Harold Ramsey, Jim Bennett, and Ben Massengale. They were outraged over claims that black real estate agents were blockbusting. And blockbusting is defined, or was defined, as the practice of persuading owners to sell your property cheaply because of the fear of people of another race or class are going to move into the neighborhood. Basically like selling it below market value. And so, in this case, the claim was that black agents were scaring white homeowners into selling, you know, telling them that the neighborhood was going to become black only. A group called the Seventh Ward Citizens Committee formed to try to buy buffer land between what they deemed white and black sections. The Negro Empire Real Estate Board reviews the charges and they're like, hey, listen, our members are not doing this. In fact, white homeowners have been seeking black realtors and they have refused to work for them. By the way, 38% of Atlanta's population is black and were only allowed to live on 16% of the land. By the end of 1962, new mayor Ivan Allen had erected the Peyton Wall, an actual wooden barricade along Peyton Road that was supposed to stem African Americans from purchasing homes on the other side. This was very close to Cascade Heights, and I do promise to cover this in detail in a future episode. Throughout the 1960s, Black Atlantans continued to slowly purchase homes in Cascade Heights. By 1967, they form a group called Southwest Atlantans for Progress, or SWAP. It was a biracial coalition of Cascade neighbors, including civil rights legend Zernona Clayton. In an attempt to calm the tensions, there was a proposed ban on real estate signs, which SWAP supported, but the Empire Board did not. And the latter's leader equated it to another Peyton Wall. I think the idea was that if you couldn't put a for sale sign, you couldn't accuse anyone of blockbusting. But many people were like, this is not the answer. So the the ban was actually defeated by the Board of Aldermen. And the articles from this time are really clunky. Like, on one hand, they're persuading white people not to sell their homes. So there are... A lot of really racist references to these new black homeowners being upper class, not being those kind of black people. And yet, on the other hand, what this group is doing and talking about was very rare and revolutionary for the time in Atlanta. Ivan Allen even came to speak at SWAP and propose some zoning ideas. In 1969, white and black local women formed a racial cooperative where the goal was to expose their kids to different types of households. And yes, they would even do a kid swap. I swear to God, they would send black kids to white families and white, family and white kids to black families. And they would even send poor children from other communities to come and stay with them and experience like a middle class and upper middle class family. Again, extremely problematic in 2021, not so much in 1969. So there you have it, the story of Cascade Heights. If for some reason you've never been, please go check it out. There's tons of great businesses along Cascade. There's a new coffee shop. There's going to be a new restaurant. There's the beautiful, so you have the like classic restaurants. There's incredible 1920s houses and bungalows. There's a lot of mid-century ranches. And their park spaces are some of the best-kept secrets in Atlanta. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a reading or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.